um, high school, my mom went back to work full time. And up to then, you know, she stayed at home to help us. But one of the things or stipulations that she made when she went back to work was that I had to cook dinner. Now, um, I really didn't know how to cook. And so she said, oh, it's easy. Here's some of these um, church recipe cookbooks. Just follow those. You know, I'll get you the um, ingredients. You just follow those. And so for a while, you know, dinners at our house, you could just tell by the family when they were eating them. It wasn't like, ooh, this is a great meal. It was like, okay, how long do we have to endure this until, you know, Dave gets better? But over time, I did get better at cooking. Well, to the point right now, I look at a recipe, I go, okay, I know I like that. I don't, I don't like that. I know that, ooh, pesto, it's basil, and basil's a strong herb, and I'm really not into strong herbs. So, you know what? I'll just replace pesto with spinach. If you ever try that, it actually tastes pretty good. So get your favorite um, recipe for pesto and add, use spinach, and it really tastes good. But anyway, um, and when I cook, I'm going to the point where I don't use recipes anymore. This is a basic recipe, but I just throw stuff in and taste it and go, okay, I think it needs this, I, need, I think it needs that. And you could do that now. However, baking is something that's totally, totally different. You know, baking is more like a chemical reaction. You know, it's more precise. When it says one cup of this, it means one cup of that. And I wasn't a good baker. I'm not like Kimi Matsuda there, who's a great baker. And if you've ever had any of the things she bakes, they are just so good. And I've always told her, I don't see how her husband Keith stays so skinny. I, I mean, if she cooked for me all that time, I'm overweight. I'd be even more overweight. But she, she bakes. But baking is hard because you can't say, oh, I want to put a little bit of this. I want to put a little bit of that. I'm going to take Oh, no, it doesn't. It's exact. When it says one half cup of baking powder, it means one half cup of baking powder. You can't guess when it comes to baking. And, you know, um, although a lot of times our, we view our faith... Like cooking. We look at our faith and how we live our life and go, oh, you know what? I want to add a little bit of this. Ooh, I don't like, the Bible says this. Ooh, I don't like the way that tastes. Uh, I'm going to add this instead. You know, I'm going to take out this ingredient and I'm going to replace it with that. But you know, living our faith is more like baking. You know, if the Bible says something, it means what it says. That if one cup of baking soda, well, one cup of baking soda. And we're going to go through, we're going to start a new series in the book of Colossians. And the church of Colossae, they were kind of experiencing these problems too. Where the gospel message was influenced, being influenced by two um, major thoughts. And one of it was the Jewish believers. What they did is they believed that in order to live out your faith, it's Jesus plus they got to the point where, yes, we believe that Jesus is, you know, died for our sins and that we need to accept him as our Lord and Savior. But living out our faith, it's Jesus plus we'll still have to, follow, you know, circumcision. We still have to follow the uh, ceremonial dietary laws and the festivals. And so they were saying that, you know, just, you know, faith alone in Jesus, it wasn't good enough, that there were still um, works that need to to be done, but also the value of the wor- a world was creeping in and being um, integrated into the Christian faith at the Church of Colossae, thus polluting the gospel message. And today, I see the same thing happening in church. 
Because it's easy for us to slip into what I call a workspace faith. You know, John Ortberg calls it pseudo-transformation. Or it's kind of like an imitation transformation. Or it's a false transformation. It's because when we look at scripture and we see the fruits of the Holy Spirit... You know, and we're looking at those and we're going, you know what? I really don't see a whole lot of transformation going on in my life. I'm not becoming more loving. I'm not becoming more patient. I'm not becoming more kind. I'm not becoming more self-controlled and so forth. And we know that's what we are supposed to be. We know the Holy Spirit's living inside each one of us. And we are supposed to be more Christ-like. But for whatever reason, maybe we're too busy. We have our focuses elsewhere. Maybe we have one foot in the world and one foot in our faith. And we're trying to live our lives that way. But it's just not working. And we know, we know that we're supposed to be different. As disciples of Jesus Christ, we are supposed to be different than the people that do not have the Holy Spirit living inside of them. But then we take a look at our friends. We look at them and they go, wow, there's not a whole lot of difference between them and us. And they don't know Jesus Christ. And in some cases, they might be nicer or or more patient and more kind and and have more self-control than we do. And so what do we do about that? Well, we have different markers that we use. And those markers are a lot of times work-based. Well, you know what? I go to church. You know, I serve in the church. I tithe. I say my daily prayers. You know, I do this, I do that, I do this. I do all of these things so I could check them off and say, okay, I'm different. You know, my friends who don't know Jesus Christ, well, they don't go to church, I do. My friends that don't have the Holy Spirit living inside their lives, well, they don't tithe to the church, I do. My friends don't serve in the church. I do. So we check those things off, and we use those things as a marker of how we're doing spiritually. So the more stuff we do, the more spiritual we think we are. And it's not about that. Our spiritual life isn't about doing more good things than bad things. That's not how our faith works. It's about having a relationship with Jesus Christ who, and allowing the Holy Spirit To transform us. You know, walk by the Spirit and you will not satisfy the desires of your flesh. It's using the Holy Spirit to do that battle for us. But a lot of times we do that. But also, also our gospel is um, being influenced by our culture. And I call this a form of universalism. When you see out there what people are thinking, and it's based upon the love of God. And they said, you know, ultimately God is a loving God. And if God is a loving God, there really are no consequences to my actions. In the end, love wins. In the end, You know, God loves us so much that he would not separate himself from us and there is no hell. Because God is a loving God. And, you know, because God is a loving God, there are no eternal consequences. And they don't, you know, young people today or people today in our culture, they don't believe in a hell. Because why would a loving God even send somebody there or create a place for people? It doesn't exist. And that's the, um, I think, uh, worldly teaching that's creeping into our church today. Is this God loving? Yes, he is. But there is no basis for the fact that, you know, God's going to um, save everybody because he loves everybody. And that there are no consequences if we do not 
trust in Jesus Christ as the Lord and Savior. But that's creeping into our church too. The same thing that was happening in the church of Colossae. And this is why Paul had to address it. And this is why it's so important for us too to understand what do we believe? What do we believe? How should we live our lives? Do I live by works-based faith? And if you've ever tried to live by works-based faith, it's tiring. If you're always trying to do more good than wrong, if that's the way you live your faith, it's going to be tiring and you're going to burn out. And you're going to feel guilty. You're always going to be filled with shame. And you're going, you know what, this Christianity thing, you know, I'm tired of it. And even when I used to live my life that way, because I kind of grew up in more of a rules-based type faith, I said, God, if this is the way I have to live out my faith, then forget it. You know, this isn't what I want. It's just too hard. But also, we don't want to live or assume or believe that just because God loves everybody means that there are no consequences. Because there are. There are consequences if we do not trust in um, the Lord Jesus Christ for salvation. And so if we have a Bible, could we turn? And this is just going to be a brief introduction today. And we're going to just go through some verses Not verse by verse, but we're going to start with Colossians verse 15. Colossians 1 verse 15. And this is what the Apostle Paul writes. He said, He is an image of the invisible God, the firstborn of all creation. And so he first, he says that Jesus, meaning he, is the image of the invisible God. Meaning that we were all created in the image of God. Meaning that we have the, we are capable of exhibiting some of God's quality. But we were created in the image of God. We are not the exact image of God. Do you all get that? We are created in His image, but we are not the exact image of God. And what Paul is saying here, that Jesus is the exact image of an invisible God. Because when you think about God in your mind, when I was growing up, I used to picture God as this old man, long white beard in heaven, sitting on his throne with lightning bolts, looking down on the earth. And when people did good, he was happy. And when you know people did bad, he was just ready to punish them. And thunder would come. And, and I really believed as a kid, when I heard thunder, that God was angry. And I'm just saying, ooh, somebody's going to get it. You know, God's angry. I had no idea what thunder was. I just thought thunder was a manifestation of God's anger. That's what I thought growing up. And so I, I, my picture of God was this angry God. This God ready just, just to nail me when I did wrong. But then when I see Jesus, I go, wow, you know, I like this Jesus. You know, I see this loving, kind, shepherd, forgiving Jesus, and I couldn't, you know, go, okay, mad God, Jesus, mad God, Jesus, what's going on here? Until, you know, as I grew up, I realized that Jesus is the exact image of God. He is God. And if you want to know what God is like, it's Jesus. So as I looked at Jesus' life, there's no way that Jesus fit into what I viewed as God. So I had to realize that my view of God was wrong. Because Jesus is the exact image image of an invisible God. So you want to know what God the Father's like? God the Holy Spirit's like? Look at Jesus' life. And he said, the firstborn of all creation. Now this is where um, a lot of people use this verse like the Jehovah Witness and say that, you know, see, Jesus really isn't fully God. 
because he's the firstborn of all creation. That Jesus was created by God, and that's false. Okay, Jesus is the exact, Jesus is made in the exact image of God. He is God. He was not firstborn of all creation. He wasn't created by God, which they think. But really when it says firstborn, we're talking about rank here. The word um, firstborn is not like, you know, Michael is my firstborn son. You know, he is my firstborn son, but that's not what we're talking about here. When they use the word firstborn, it's talking about rank. That Jesus is the ultimate, okay? Um, He is not created. He is the highest. I mean, he is supreme. That's his ranking. He is not created. And see, the thing is, um, the Greek philosophy, they just scorned the simplicity of Christianity. The Greeks were thinkers. They were philosophers. So when somebody comes and says, so what's the basics of, basis of your faith? Well, then we one that Jesus Christ was God. He died for your sins. And if you accept him as your um, Lord and Savior and accept his gift of salvation, believing that he died on the cross for your sins and rose again, then you're saved. And the Greeks are saying, you've got to be kidding me. Well, where's the catch? Where's the intellect in that? That is too simple. And so the uh, group c- called the Gnostics started to um, r- uh, come into the church. And they believed that, no, 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 your gospel message is way too simple. It's got to be more complex. It's got to be more intellectual than that. So they came up with this philosophy of what they call secret meaning. Or there's got to be a deeper meaning that only those who are spiritual get okay and one of the things that they believed was that the spirit or spiritual was good and the material was bad material a spirit good material was bad therefore jesus being a human part of the material world he could not be god because material things are evil so they were saying that jesus um was not god that he was a he was created he was a created and he was a fallen individual just like the rest of us because of that. But then he, um, Paul goes on and he says, For by him all things were created in heaven and on earth, visible and invisible, whether thrones or dominions or rulers or authorities. All things were created through him and for him. Once again, Paul is saying, no, 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 Jesus was not a created being. Because Jesus was one who created everything, okay? And so if Jesus created everything, how could he be a created being? And so he said, he created everything in heaven and in earth, visible and visible, whether thrones, dominions, rulers, or authorities. And we just see those as rankings of angels there. So Jesus created everything. He is above creation Because he created everything. He was not a created being, as they were trying to tell the church. He says, he is before all things, and in him he holds all things together. He was before all things. He wasn't a created being. And he said, he holds all things together. What's all things? Well, he holds our entire universe together. You know, there's about 400 billion stars in our um, known Milky Way galaxy. And if you take a look at the universe, they're estimating that there's maybe between 100 and 2 billion galaxies in our, you know, what we know as far as our universe. And, you know, even now physicists are postulating, is our universe infinite? 
And more and more are starting to think that it's infinite. And Jesus is holding all of these things together. Jesus is holding all of these things together. He is not a created being. And he go, Paul goes on to say that he is the head of the body, the church. He is the beginning, the firstborn from the dead, that in everything he might be preeminent. Once again, the firstborn from the dead. And they look at this and say, see, once again, he was the firstborn. He is created. No, because we knew that people were resurrected from the dead before Jesus. I mean, Jesus was the one who resurrected Lazarus, right? But once again, they're saying that Jesus is the supreme over all of those who have been raised from the dead. It says, for in him, 19 and 20, the fullness of, for in him all the fullness of God was pleased to dwell, and through him to reconcile to himself all things, whether on earth or heaven, making peace by the blood of his cross. The all in him, for in him all the fullness of God was pleased. And see, the Gnostics believed that God would parcel out part of his power to individuals or spiritual beings. And so what Paul is saying, no, 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 no. You know, God just didn't parcel out part of his power to Jesus. In Jesus, the fullness of God exists because he is God. That he is not just a being that God just parceled out some of his power. And it says, through him to reconcile himself to all things. And what's all things? Well, number one, creation. Because we know that at the end of the creation, what did God say? That what? That this is... Bad? No, he said that it was good. At the end of creation, he looked at what he created and he said, this is good. Now, how many of you look around this world and you can say the same thing today? This is good. You know, when Adam and Eve sinned, they messed things up. And ever since then, not only individuals like us, but we know that the earth, Romans tells us, that is under a curse. And that Christ is reconciling, you know, has reconciled us to him. And we know that one day when there's a new heaven and a new earth, that this whole earth will be reconciled to back where God could say it was good. And the Romans tells us that the earth is just groaning and looking forward that, to the day where it could be reconciled back to where it was before Adam and Eve um, sinned. And verse 21 And you who were once alienated and hostile in mind, doing evil things. Um, Verse 22, it says, He has now reconciled his body of flesh by his death in order to present you holy and blameless and above reproach before him. Well, it says, And all of you who were once alienated and in hostile mind, doing evil deeds. Romans 1 21 through 23 says, For although they knew God, they neither glorified him as God nor gave thanks to him. But their thinking became futile and their foolish hearts were darkened. Although they claimed to be wise, they became fools and exchanged the glory of the immortal God for images made to look like a mortal human being and birds and animals and reptiles. And others, what he was saying is, you know, we wanted to do our own thing. God says, look, I created you for a purpose. I put down these uh, rules, not to box you in, but number one, to make you realize that you guys aren't perfect and that you need me. But number two, these rules and regulations were made to help you. But that wasn't good enough for us to follow God. Having God wasn't good enough. So what... um, 
Paul was saying is that we created idols to worship. And we still do that today, right? We may not go out and carve you know, a bird or a reptile or a snake out of wood, put it in our house and worship it. But we do worship things. We do put things above, you know, our love and loyalty to God. It could be our family. It could be our girlfriend or boyfriend relationships. It could be our job. It could be our career. It could be our goals. It could be our desires that we are chasing. And we are putting those things above God. And so he was saying, yeah, yes, you know, before, you used to be chasing those things. You know, your heart was far from me. But he goes, now. But now, he says in verse 22, he has now reconciled in his body of flesh by his death in order to present you holy and blameless and above reproach. In other words, before, the Bible says we were enemies of God. But through the death and the blood shed on the cross by Jesus Christ, you know, for those of us who have accepted that gift and who trust in Jesus Christ for our salvation, we are not enemies anymore. We're friends. But what are the benefits of being that? He says, number one, we, are, we have been reconciled. And when he says reconciled there, the word is that we have been thoroughly and completely reconciled with God. And nothing, you know, can change that. And he said, um, God cannot fellowship with sin. He can't. And therefore, he couldn't fellowship with us. But because our sins were paid for on the cross, we can now be in fellowship with God. We are now reconciled. We are now his friends. But as a byproduct of that, he declared us holy, which means that we are separated from our sins. He separated our sins from us. Because holy just means to be set apart. And so the Bible says he has taken our sins and separated them from us as far as east is from west and remembers them no more. He has separated our sin for us from us because of what Jesus Christ did on the cross. But also, he says that we're blameless. We're blameless. And the word blameless there is without blemish. Without blemish. You know, when I was in high school, I had to take a look at the mirror every single day and see all of these acne, you know, um, uh, marks on my face. And, you know, my dad was a professor at the USC School of Pharmacy. So I said, Dad, can't you get me something, you know, that's stronger than whatever I could get at the um, drugstore to help with my acne and then he would, he got, I forgot what he got me and all of that. And I took it. Then all of a sudden my skin cleared up and it was without blemish. And I was saying, oh, thank you. Cause I had a severe case of acne. But this is what God sees, how God sees you without blemish. There are no blemishes in you. Even though we might think we have blemish, God does not see you as somebody that's flawed. And finally, it says he sees you as somebody who's above reproach. That means there is nobody that could bring a charge against you. Nobody. Satan can't. You know, the Bible said there is no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. And who is the judge? Well, just look at Romans 8. You know, we see that there is no condemnation. We have nothing to fear. Why? Because we are above reproach. Satan could accuse us all he wants based upon what he sees in our actions. 
But God says, no, 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 I died for Pastor Dave's sin. He is above reproach. No matter what you say about him, you, uh, you know, there is no condemnation. I will not condemn him. And that's a wonderful thing. Now, you know, God does forgive our sins, but there are consequences. He doesn't remove the consequences for our sin. And that's important, too, because when we do sin, God loves us, God forgives us, but he doesn't remove the consequences. But, you know, he says that good will come out of that. And finally, um, he says, and this is a a key here in verse uh, 123. Well, he gives us all of these things. He declares us holy. He declares us blameless and above reproach. But verse 23, if indeed you continue in the faith, stable and steadfast, not shifting from the hope of the gospel that you heard, which has been proclaimed in all creation under heaven, and of which I, Paul, became a minister. You know, one of the telling marks of a true believer, as we see in the Bible, is a continuation of your faith. That's one of the marks of a true believer. Now, I don't want to get into the subject of can you lose your faith or can you not lose your I mean, can you lose your salvation or can you, are you secure in your salvation? I think you know where I stand on this one. I believe that you know, our salvation is secure in Jesus Christ. However, the mark of somebody who has been redeemed, the mark of somebody who is a true disciple, one of their marks is that they will continue on in their faith. Now, there might be times when we walk away from God. You know, I've done that. But the true believer will always come back. The true believer will always continue in their faith. And this is why it's so important for us to know people who have wandered from their faith, that we need to be praying for them. We need to be actively going out there and trying to bring them back into the fold. Uh, Praise God that Leo is um, okay. But why don't we just take this time and, you know, let's pray for Leo right now. Gracious Heavenly Father, I know that it's not easy growing old where, you know, our our strength seems to fail us sometimes. And, um, you know, we can't do the things that we want to do. And we ask that you would continue to strengthen Leo. And we thank you, Father, that even though he did fall, that it appears that there were... Um, no injuries done to him, and ask that you would continue to watch um, over him, and Father, that you would you know heal his body, Father, if anything uh, did happen. So once again, I thank you for his faithfulness, Father, despite um, you know his strength failing him. You know he's he comes to church every single Sunday, and he's an example, Father, of what it means to be faithful to the end. So thank you so much for his life. In your sons' name, we pray. Amen. You know, and and that's important. You know, once again, it says if, you know, all of these things are available if you continue on in the faith. So one of the things I want us to leave with that is so important that we continue on in our faith. Parents, it's important that we don't teach our kids just to know that Jesus died for their sins. That they're um, embarking on a lifetime journey. That they're going to walk with Jesus for the rest of their lives. And how important it is to continue on in the faith because a mark of a true believer is one who continues um, in the faith until the end. Let's pray. Father, once again, we thank you so much for 
um, what we've learned. And Lord, I'm just so grateful, Father, that you, through the shed blood of your son, Jesus Christ, that you declared um, me holy. That you declared all of us who trust in you, Father, holy. That we're, we're not blemished, Father. That we're, um, and that, Father, that we've also above reproach. Because so many times, Father, the enemy accuses us, plants thoughts in our heads to try to make us feel guilty or ashamed of what we've done. And, Father, a lot of times we do that ourselves. Where we're our worst critics. But, Father, as we read Scripture, I pray that you would allow each one of us to view ourselves the way you view us and not the way we view us or even not the way that the world has viewed us or maybe labeled us. And, Father, I want to pray right now for anyone who has seemed to have strayed from the faith. Father, we know that you love them. And, Father, may your Spirit work in their hearts to bring them back. Father, may your spirit work in each one of our hearts as we know those who might be away, Father, from you right now to go to that person, to care for that person, to pray for that person, and hope, Father, that they'll come back knowing with you, Father, all things are possible, that there's nothing impossible. Thank you. In your son's name we pray. Amen.